Hello, and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. Alrighty. Say so you're first today with this one, I think. Yes, with one that's quite heavy and um, a, a little bit long, not too bad, just a little over um, three pages, about three and a half, but it is it's quite a lot. So let's see here. And I'm going to mess up names because this was back in the early 1900s and the names are very thick. I think how we pronounce his name is Andrew Kehoe. Sure. Kehoe, Kehoe. I'm going to pronounce it Kehoe. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. Um, but this is Andrew Kehoe and the Bath School Disaster. So Andrew Philip Kehoe was born in Tecumseh, Michigan, among the younger of 13 children to Philip and Mary Kehoe. He attended Tecumseh High School and Michigan State College, which later became Michigan State University, where he stuttered, studied electrical engineering. Remember that. <laughs> there he met his future wife, Ellen, also known as Nellie Price, who was the daughter of a wealthy Lansing family. After college, Andrew left Michigan, working for several years as an electrician in St. Louis, Missouri. And during this time, in 1911, he experienced a severe head injury from a fall, which caused him to be in a coma for about two weeks. Kehoe moved back in with his father after his injury, but during this time away, his mother had passed away, and his father had married a woman named Frances Wilder whom Andrew did not like. On September 17, 1911, Francis was severely burned when the family's stove exploded as she was attempting to light it. So, oh. yeah. The fuel uh, drenched her and her body ended up catching fire. Kehoe threw water on her from a nearby bucket, but of course... Due to the oil-based nature of the fire, it did absolutely nothing to extinguish the flames. And Frances later died from her injuries, and allegations were made that the stove had been tampered with. Oh. Which sounds right on par for him. It's just, it's, it's, wow. In 1912, Andrew and Nellie were wed, and in 1919... The couple bought a 185-acre farm outside the village of Bath from Nellie's aunt for $12,000, which in 2021, it that was the equivalent of about 337000 Oh, wow. Which is even low for a 185-acre farm. Like 337000 that's... At least in the city, that's most houses. <laughs> I'm cheap. That seems expensive to me and up here. Um, in a lot of farm country, somebody is like, it's $300,000 for these acres. I'd be like, no thanks. Well, down here, that's actually, that's pretty decent. Cool. Um, a lot of houses in at least North Carolina in the bigger cities, even some of our off cities that are just like outside the big cities, 
you're looking at like between 300 and 500,000. Oh, wow. And that's with close neighbors, no acreage. Hmm. So that's I'm like, that's one heck of a deal. He had paid $6,000 in cash and took out a mortgage for $6,000. Kehoe was known to his neighbors as a man who was highly intelligent, but grew impatient and angry with anyone who would disagree with him. They recalled that he was always neat, dressed meticulously, and would change his shirt in the afternoon or whenever it became even the least bit dirty. Hmm. They also stated how he was cruel to his farm animals, going so far as to having once beaten a horse to death. Wow. Ew. Okay, can I just say, like, not even the animals, but just the shirt thing just seems a red flag to me. What mm. type of person? <laughs> and oh, it's yeah. Like, you're a farmer. You're, you should be used to working outside, working with animals, getting dirty. So I think that compulsion to be, have to be clean. Like, okay, there's something going on. Yeah. There's a lot of red flags that I wish somebody had just like, I mean, really paid attention to. But yeah, that was a big one for me too. Like being a little over, over obsessive about that. This seems weird. I don't know. Right, right. Him and his wife initially attended services at the Catholic Church in Bath. But Andrew refused to pay the church's parish assessment of members and prevented his wife from attending. His neighbors thought that he much preferred tinkering with mechanics than farming. And his neighbor, Monty Ellsworth, wrote, "He He never farmed it as other farmers do. And he tried to do everything in his uh, everything with his tractor. He was in the height of his glory when fixing machinery or tinkering. He was always trying new methods in his work. For instance, hitching two mowers behind his tractor. This method did not work at different times. And he would just leave the hay standing. He also put four sections of drag and two rollers at once behind his tractor he spent so much time tinkering that he didn't prosper. Huh. It To me, it seems a lot like... I don't think he really wanted a farm, per se. Yeah. He wanted the money that could come along with the farm. Well, and farmers aren't exactly known for being, like, super well, <laughs> super wealthy. It's, it's hard work. No. A lot of time and money. Right. A more recent analysis labels him a dangerous injustice collector, which is a person who remembers slights and holds grudges for a very long time, which to me sounds a lot like me, Um, except it becomes dangerous when a person starts feeling like a victim and attacks. Agreed. Yeah. Very much agreed. I, you know, the Scorpio in me just, I never forget. And... I may be like, okay, you're forgiven in a sense of I'm not going to sit here and like berate you for the rest of my life, but not forgiven in the sense that I'm ever going to speak to you again. Like, (laughs) I'm mad. You're trash. You're always going to be trash. And that's that. Like, it's never going to (laughs) change. So I get that, but I don't. Hold that grudge for life. Life. 
<laughs> Due to his reputation for being thrifty, Kehoe was elected as treasurer of the Bath Consolidated School Board in 1924. While on the board, he fought for lower taxes and was often in conflict with ever other board members, voting against them and calling for adjournment whenever he didn't get his way. He was constantly accusing Superintendent Emery, okay, another name, Huck, Hike, Huck, gonna say Huck, um, <laughs> of financial mismanagement. He was appointed as the Bath Township Clerk in 1925 for a short time, but in the 1926 spring election, he was defeated for the position and was enraged by his public defeat. His neighbor Ellsworth thought that Kehoe started planning a murderous revenge against the community at that time. Wow. Another neighbor, A. McMullen, noticed that he had stopped working altogether on his farm in his last year and thought that he could be planning to kill himself. During this same time frame, Nellie was chronically ill with tuberculosis and had regular hospital stays, wow. as at the time there was no successful treatment or cure for the disease, which ugh, I just really felt for her. Yeah. Ugh. By the time of the Bath School disaster, Andrew had quit making his mortgage and homeowner's insurance payments, and the mortgage lender began foreclosure proceedings against the farm. So, first, he gets his public defeat. His wife's chronically ill. And then the mortgage begins foreclosing against him. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's that's not the bank's fault. That's just, <laughs> he wasn't paid his bills. Right. On May 18, 1927, Kehoe perpetrated a series of explosions known as the Bath School Disaster in Bath Township, Michigan, which killed 45 people, including himself, and injured at least 58. Oh, wow. Most of the victims were children from second to sixth grade, ages ranging from seven to 12 years old, who were attending the Bath Consolidated School and this disaster remains the deadliest act of mass murder in a school in U.S. history. Wow. Yeah. That's great. That's so many kids. Oh, it's awful. Oh, gosh. So many children. There were some adults that were killed or injured, but the majority of the victims were children. Wow. Between May 16... The morning his wife returned home from a hospital stay and May 18, 1927, which was the day of the disaster, Kehoe murdered his wife. Oh, my gosh. He transferred her body to a farm building before setting off incendiary explosions in their home and farm buildings. Whoa. This is where it started on May 18. Um, they don't know if he had killed her. On the 16th, when she got home, on the 18th, 17th, they just know somewhere between those days she was murdered. And then on the 18th, everything started. Around the same time, he arranged time explosions in the new school building. The supplies in the North Wing detonated as planned, killing many children and some adults inside. Kehoe had also set a time detonator to ignite dynamite 
and hundreds of pounds of pyrotol, which is an incendiary explosive used by farmers during that time for excavation and burning debris at the school, which he secretly bought and planted in the basement of both wings over the course of many months. Wow. So he had been like little by little adding things without anybody taking notice. Yeah. And, or saying anything at least. Luckily, the second 500 pounds of explosives in the south wing did not detonate, so that area of the school was not destroyed. He had concealed the explosives in six lengths of eavesdrop pipe, three bamboo fishing rods, and what was described as windmill rods were placed in the basement ceiling. He had also rigged a container of gasoline with a tube and it was speculated that he had planned that the gas fumes would ignite from a spark, which would set the basement ablaze. Holy shit. It was, like, fully thought out. Yeah. It's a lot of, st- I mean, like, over a ton of explosives in total. It was just, like, overkill. And yeah. As bad as it was, it could have been so much worse if that other wing had gone, too. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It at least doubled, likely. Yeah, probably would have taken the whole building down if it got through the basement, and then everything above would probably collapse in. And oh, and then you and you think about forty-five people killed, including himself, with only one wing doing that. Yeah, at least Shit. doubled. At least doubled if the other wing did too. As rescuers started congregating at the school, Kehoe arrived. During a struggle with the superintendent, Huck, Kehoe set off dynamite that was stored inside his shrapnel-filled truck, killing himself and Huck, as well as killing and injuring several others. Among them was a boy who had survived the initial bombing. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. During the rescue efforts, searchers uncovered the additional 500 pounds of unexploded dynamite and pyrotol planted throughout the basement of the school's south wing. These explosives connected to an an alarm clock that was expected to act as the detonator had been set for the same time that the other explosion occurred. So they were supposed to happen exact same time. After the bombings, investigators found a wooden sign wired to the farm's fence. Uh, Criminals are made, not born, was stenciled onto the front which would be Kehoe's last message. Jesus. When investigators finished taking inventory of the Kehoe estate, they estimated that prior to its destruction, and this is the this is what's the kicker for me, is he he wasn't smart enough to get it because prior to the destruction, the sale of the unused equipment and materials on the farm would have garnered Kehoe enough money to pay off their mortgage. Oh, my gosh. So if he had sold everything, like all the equipment, he wasn't into farming anyways. He liked tinkering and he liked doing electrical work. If you just sold the farm shit, you would have paid off your mortgage. Sell off a lot of the acreage and just keep your house and your tractors to work on. Literally. Yeah. But screams delusion. 100%. 100%. Narcissistic, delusional, wow. 
Like, yeah, he was going through a lot at the time. And I will say that that could bring anyone to their knees. You know, your wife's chronically ill. You're losing your house. Everything's, you, you lost your job. Everything's going to shit. I get it. But that's not enough to just, what did the children ever do to deserve this? Just a, yeah, that's. To me, it's like he wanted the deaths of the children to harm the adults who didn't vote for him. Yeah. Oh, you didn't, you didn't vote for me. I'm going to kill your child. Kind of a thing. There, there are no words. It's just horrible. Yeah. It's kind of made me sick. (laughs) Yeah. Writing this has just made me feel ill. There is no clear indication as to when he had the idea of massacring the school children and townsfolk. Although Ellsworth, the neighbor believed that Kehoe devised the plan after being defeated in the 1926 election and the consensus um, consensus of the townsfolk was that he had worked on his plan at least since the previous August. So August of 26. One of the Bath School board members, M.W. Keyes, was quoted by the New York Times as saying, I have no doubt that he made his plans last fall to blow up the school. He was an experienced electrician, and the board employed him in November to make some repairs on the school lighting system system he had ample opportunity then to plant the explosives and lay wires for touching it off wow yeah that's a long time to plan and gather and especially with nobody watching you like you had you have free reign to go in and say you're working on electrical stuff in the basement and then exactly and and as it says here kehoe had free access to the school during the summer of 1926 And from mid-1926, he began buying more than a ton of Pyrotol. Wow. In November of 1926, he drove to Lansing and purchased two boxes of dynamite at a sporting goods store. Dynamite was also so commonly, uh, commonly used on farms at that time that this purchase of the small amount at different stores and on different dates did not raise any suspicion. Neighbors had also reported hearing explosions coming from the farm, and one nicknamed him the Dynamite Farmer. After the disaster, it was said that Michigan State Police had also found that a significant amount of dynamite had been stolen from a bridge construction site and that Kehoe was suspected of the theft. Also leading up to the disaster, Ida Hall, who lived in the house next to the school, saw activity around the building on different nights in May. Early one one morning after midnight, she saw a man carrying objects into the school and saw vehicles around the building on several occasions late at night. She mentioned this to a relative, but of course, it was never reported to the police. Mm. Which probably should have been. I mean, for the time, I, I don't think anybody suspected anything like this. They probably thought, oh, it's just a weird time of night to be bringing large objects into a school. Yeah. And what a, (laughs) I don't want to call it a naive time in history when you could, we've talked about this before, you could just go buy dynamite and you didn't have to have special licensing or anything like that. Just available at a sporting goods store. Get some dynamite. 
Yeah, you got two crates. I'll take those. Okay, here you go, sir. Yeah. Have a nice day. And so this is for the aftermath now. The American Red Cross set up an operations center at the Crumb Drug Store and provided aid and comfort to the victims. The Lansing Red Cross headquarters stayed open until 11.30 p.m. that night to answer phones, update the list of the deceased and injured, and provide information and planning services for the following day. The local community was very generous, which was reported by the Associated Press at the time as a sympathetic public assured the rehabilitation of the stricken community. Aid was tendered freely in the hope that the grief of those who lost loved ones might even uh, might be slight, even slightly mitigated. The Red Cross managed donations sent to pay for both the medical expenses of the injured and the burial costs of the deceased. In a few short weeks, $5,284.15, the equivalent to $82,431.2021, was raised, including $2,500 from the Clinton County Board of Supervisors and $2,000 from the Michigan Legislature. So... Most of the money came from the board and from the legislature, which good. Yeah. I mean, that it needs to happen, but it's just still like. I. The disaster received nationwide attention in the days following, which back then is quite a lot if you're getting nationwide attention, mm-hmm. even going out of the country type attention, because it's like. We didn't have the news then like we do today. There wasn't yeah. internet. There wasn't TV like that. There wasn't all Yeah, you these wouldn't things. necessarily know what's going on outside of your area unless it was big, big news. Big news that everybody finds out and just starts writing reports on it. Like you disasters and tragedies and, and big, big stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The disaster received nationwide attention in the days following, sharing headlines with Charles Lindbergh's Transatlantic Crossing. And elicited a national outpouring of grief. Headlines all characterized Kehoe as a maniac, a madman, and a fiend. People from across the world expressed sympathy to the families of the community and uh, the community of Bath, including letters. This one hurts my soul. Including letters from Italian school children. One fifth grade class wrote, Even if we are small, we understand all the sorrow and misfortune that has struck our dear brothers. In another Italian class writing, we are praying to God to give the give to the unfortunate mothers and fathers the strength to bear the great sorrow sorrow that has descent on them. We are near to you in spirit. Which just makes me want to cry. (laughs) To be honest, I'm trying not to, but I feel it. (laughs) Yeah. Oof. Neighbors testified that he had been wiring the buildings at his farm around the time of the explosions and that he was evasive about his reasons. His neighbor, Sidney J. Ahowell, testified that after the fire began at the Kehoe farm, Kehoe warmed him and three men to leave the farm, saying, boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. I don't know if he was trying to warn them to get their kids. Yeah. Or what what it was about. 
On August 22nd, three months after the massacre, fourth grader Beatrice Gibbs died following hip surgery. Her death was the 45th and final death directly attributed to the Bath School disaster, which made it the deadliest attack to ever occur in American, American school. Richard Fritz, whose older sister, Marjorie Fritz, was killed in the explosion, was injured in the attack and died almost one year after of myocarditis at the age of eight. Although Richard isn't included on many lists of the victims, his death from myocarditis is thought to have been directly caused due to an infection resulting from his injuries. Oh my gosh. So technically, there should be 46. Yeah. Because the infection wouldn't have happened if he wouldn't have been injured, in my opinion. Like, that's just to me. Yeah, they're linked. One of Kehoe's sisters claimed his remains and arranged for a bur- burial without ceremony in an unmarked grave at Mount Rest Cemetery in St. John's. So even his family, his sister was like, washing my hands of this, you get nothing from me. The Price family claimed Nellie's remains, what, what could be found of them, and buried her in Lansing under her maiden name. Yeah, kind I, of like I a, can understand that one. I don't blame them one bit for doing no, that. No, I totally agree. Yeah. And you wouldn't want her associated with her killer. I get it. No. It was just, it was a pretty harsh, harsh one for me to write. Like reading all the different things and how many children as a mom that like really hurt my soul. Exactly. <laughs> Especially when you have a kid that's close to the age of those that were killed. Yeah. And anytime I see any news story where a boy or around the same age or a kid around the same age is killed, I'm just like, oh. Yeah, like the the recent teacher, I don't I don't remember what state, but the recent teacher who was shot through her hand and chest by her student. Yeah. Um, same age as my son. Also disabled, like my son. Also has an IEP, like my son. It's like so many things Mm -hmm. that I can't help but be enraged at, like, what's going going on around it. Yeah, that was a failure of a lot of people. Like, the parents for the kid having access to the weapon... And then the administration for ignoring multiple warnings throughout the day that something was going on. That's just a mess. And it, yeah, oh, I can't believe she, like she survived that. Glad, and I'm yeah. glad she can sue and everything else because I would be, I would be taking it to the administration for sure. Which I I I get it, and so it's like things like that where you see so many things lining up. Like, how did a six-year-old gain access to a gun to begin with? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, why? But it's anything like like you said, anything around the same age group. These kids weren't much older. Like, the ages went from seven to 12. My son's six. Could have been next year. It, yeah. You know? Like, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's- horrible 
And for what? Yeah. Just because he was mad at the town for his failings? Yeah, that was a lot of time to stew in anger, too. Like, all that time that he would have had to be putting it together and wiring and collecting things. And that's just, yeah. That's not like a last minute thought. Not like a, oh, that's it. I've had it. I'm going to go do this tomorrow. This was meticulously thought out. Yeah. And. Exactly. It's awful. So. Uh, <laughs> to try and get away from that awfulness. Yeah, uh, please. I'm going to tell you today about the Tweety Bird Bandit. Or the Tweety <laughs> Bird Robber. Something so I tried, at least somewhat upbeat. <laughs> I tried to find one that was not uh, murdery or sad. And a little bit quirky and weird. Just because... <laughs> I feel like you told me which one you were going to do. I'm like, all right, I got to find something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> give, us, give us a little bit of a, and they call that a levity break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at 520 PM on March 24th, 2003, a blonde woman wearing a cap with Tweety Bird on it and a headset walked up to the Citizens Bank drive through window in Genesee Township. And I just want you to picture at the time. This is 2003. So the cell phone headsets were like the big, the big deals. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if it was the one where like the arm would come down in front of your mouth. So this is like, this isn't a Bluetooth headphone or like a AirPod. This is, this would have been big. <laughs> right. <laughs> like a headset for gamers. Yeah, like it's Essentially. She was crying and sent a note to the teller saying the bank would blow up in five minutes unless she was given cash. And this wasn't like she walked into the bank. She's at the drive through window, walked up to the drive through bank window. It's, yeah. And every once in a while, she would speak into the headset and told the bank teller she was talking to the person in control of the bomb. In April... She robbed a national city bank in Clio. There, her note said, two men with guns, quote, made me do this. Wearing the same hat, she was referred to as the Tweety Bird Robber. And I can't think of a worse name. If you're going to be given a name for a crime, you're committing Tweety Bird. <laughs> Tweety. Tweety Bird. <laughs> That just seems ridiculous to me. But despite the terrible name, she kept striking. Before the end of the year, police believed she had robbed banks seven times, hitting banks around Flint, as well as a bank in Lapeer and stealing about $18,000. Good God. In 2003. I don't. Maybe it's because I was in school still, but I don't. I don't remember this being a news story, which I, you know, if somebody's like, hey, somebody's robbing banks wearing a Tweety Bird hat. <laughs> that, yeah, in 2003, that, that was. That seems like something years. I would remember because it's so right? weird. Yeah, that was two years before I graduated. 
Yeah. So like I should have I did not hear anything about this. Yeah. Like I remember things from JonBenet and from I mean like Tanya Harding. I remember stuff from the early nineties, OJ, Princess Diana. I remember it all. I did not hear anything about the Tweety Robber. <laughs> it's a weird enough thing that you would remember. A Tweety oh, yeah. Bird hat specifically. That's a weird that's a weird choice. Three days before Christmas, she went into a citizen's bank on West Vienna Road that she had previously hit in August. She she went back again. Um, oh, my God. After the us- usual note shtick, uh, she left the bank and was seen taping the robbery note over her license plate. This was her downfall. Why take the note at all? Why take it with you? It, it seems unnecessary. At that point, <laughs> like you got why to go to a place that you already hit, especially if you're saying they're making me do it. Yeah. If they're still doing this months later and you've gone to nobody, that doesn't add <laughs> up, lady. <laughs> and the taping it over the license plate. You couldn't have found anything else to put there? <laughs> Remove the damn license plate. Yeah. Like, what is your. <laughs> but, um, Yeah. <laughs> So she was driving a Burgundy 1999 Pontiac Bonneville. However, it's illegal to drive with a hidden plate or no plate at all. Uh, So that wouldn't have worked. Uh, She was pulled over. The officer removed the note for her, saw what was written on it, and searched the car, finding the money she had just stolen. If it had been covered with anything else, you'd probably be like, oh, I don't know how that got there, officer. How strange. But no, you taped your robbery note to the license plate. You could have, like, stuck a branch or something out of your trunk and made it look like the leaves were covering your plate accidental. Oh, let me remove this. Thank you. I didn't realize, officer. You know, but. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't understand the logic there. With that traffic stop, police discovered the Tweety Bird Bandit was none other than Teresa M. Baird, a fifth grade teacher at Washington Elementary School. Baird was well-liked and had a good work record. An article on MLive says Baird said she started robbing banks after her family was threatened by a drug dealer. The article says, quote, Baird said she became involved with the man who accused her of stealing his marijuana she began robbing banks to pay him off and protect her family. She was married and had a teenage daughter whose hat she wore to commit the robberies. Oh, gee, thanks, Ma. <laughs> right? Give me my damn hat back, psycho. Like, what? Mom, where's my Tweety Bird hat? I don't know, sweetie. It just disappeared. <laughs> wow. So, how the... The story in a, in a couple different locations um, and sources was like either like this story was like, oh, um, this dealer says you owe him money, whatever. Another one was that she had racked up quite the bill with her drug dealer and uh, smoking a lot of and marijuana, it was saying. Like, how do you rack up that big of a debt to a dealer for marijuana? <laughs> like how much weed? You'd be smoking. <laughs> right. 
that you need to rob a bank. Yeah, I I mean, prices have gone up since 2003, I imagine. Like, drug inflation? Is that a thing? I'm sure it is. (laughs) I don't know. But that's a lot of weed. It's like you've stolen $18,000 and that wasn't enough. Calm down. (laughs) Baird was charged with six counts of bank robbery. She was sentenced to two to 20 years in prison and was ordered to pay nearly $22,000 in restitution. After her sentencing, her attorney said she denied all of the robberies except the last one. Okay, Obviously, that was, that was the one she was caught at. That's what... <laughs> she had already done it previously, so we know it's you. Yeah. She's like, you can is only prove this one. <laughs> is, it, is it crack that you're smoking, ma'am? I mean, it was a lot of money and weed. Something happened. I don't know. And I I tried to find more information on her, like any kind of jail or prison records, but I wasn't having any luck. So I did try to find more on her, but it's like, it basically, um, MLive news story, there was another website that had a bit on it, and then there was the book that had a, a short thing on it and that book is am i bad robbers cutthroats and thieves in michigan's past and present by tom carr so those are my three resources for this one mine was basically wikipedia (laughs) that's a you know i've used that a few times you know that one i don't i don't have the time to be looking up all the sources that are usually in the the see and how i had come across this even was because I knew you were doing one on prohibition. And so I was trying to like, if I just do Michigan and and murder or Michigan death and alcohol related, nothing was really just coming up other than like over drinking or get like drunk driving. And I was like, this isn't what I'm looking for. So I just thought of the time. Like I was just like, okay, Michigan murder 19, 1920s and boom there was that and I was like well I think I'll just do this one now that you mentioned the timing that is extra weird to me you're not allowed to buy alcohol and have a drink but go buy some dynamite that's still cool (laughs) exactly (laughs) wow exactly it's the depression yeah that timing's crazy to think of it, yeah, it, it it stuns you for a minute because you're like, yeah, like, hey, that beer is not okay to have, but instead, why don't you take this box of dynamite yeah. home? Don't you dare, don't you dare come home from a busy day at work and have a beer. But here's some dynamite. Go blow up a school friend. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. What? Do what you what? will with this massive explosive here you go seems like the priorities were a bit skewed that (laughs) that wow wow well 1920s man they were interesting yeah i mean if if the guy could have had a drink at the time who knows maybe he could have just (laughs) right Drink your troubles away and uh, maybe not blow up a school. 
And I mean, like, yeah, he knew how to tinker. He knew electric, uh, like, electrician work. But, like, if he had had the wherewithal at all to sell the equipment that he doesn't use because he hasn't been farming for months, sell the yeah. equipment. Well, there was over 300 literally. acres, right? Uh, I think it was 100 and oh, 100. 158. Yeah. So sell most of the acreage off and your equipment to go with it. And then, uh, yeah. I mean, very much that. Like, I'm actually taking a look because now I'm questioning myself. <laughs> yeah, 185. So 58, 85. I meant 85. <laughs> 185 acres, which, yeah, he could have sold some of that, but like they even said, he didn't even need to. All he had to do was get rid of some of the unused equipment and things around the farm that he wasn't using, yeah. and he would have paid off his debt completely. <sighs> Solid. Priorities. Jeez. But no, I lost my election. <laughs> wow. Okay, fam. <laughs> Sure. Well. <laughs> but that, that Tweety Bird murder. The robber. <laughs> That's... Uh, just imagine if she was wearing like a Tasmanian devil hat. Because that was also <laughs> popular at the time too. Everybody Yosemite had like... Sam. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like there was a time that everybody had like Tasmanian devil shirts and stuff. Tweety Bird, Bugs Bunny, and Taz. Yeah. Every, those three. Oh my gosh. Good thing she didn't have a roadrunner on her car, because I would be like, false. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Incorrect. just don't take your bank robbery note to block your license plate. That's also yeah. an option. Just a thought. <laughs> like, steal someone else's license plate. I'm giving criminals ideas now, but I'm sure they already know this. <laughs> If you're going to rob a bank with your own car, at least switch the license plate out, I guess. I don't know. Like, there's just so many things that's like, it's a good thing I'm not a criminal because I, there's so many times I look at these things where I'm like, wouldn't you just yeah. do this instead? Like, <laughs> like common sense criminals. Jeez. <laughs> but they Get don't have any. shit together. <laughs> they don't have any. And I guess that's why they changed their life to crime. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Like, wow, that was a dumb decision, huh? <laughs> What'd you do uh, that for? <laughs> <sighs> well, thank you for listening, everybody. You uh, be safe out there and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.